Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein A Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein A Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein A Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for tuning in to Triple R. We have a very big show for you today. I don't have any of my co-hosts with me on the program today because I'm having a discussion with four individuals about the upcoming choices we'll all be making with regards to our kids, with COVID, and with the return to school. Uh, it's a full hour on this. Uh, apologies if you are hoping for some astrophysics, but that will have to wait until next week. We thought this was a topic that we need to cover as soon as possible. So on the line with me now, I have, and let me introduce them one by one, Professor Sharon Goldfeld is the Director of the Centre for Community Child Health at the Royal Children's Hospital and many other things. Good morning, Sharon. How are you going? Morning, Shane. Now you're I'm also doing okay. excellent. Now you're also a professor in the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Melbourne, and um, you know, extraordinary in terms of mental health and and all things kids. So we're going to jump into that in a moment. Thanks for joining us. We also have Associate Professor Margie Danchen back on the show. I think, uh, Margie, you're up to your fourth time or something here. Um, <laughs> now, you're the Director for the Centre for Community Child Health at the Royal Children's Hospital as well. Morning, Margie. Morning. It's great nice to have to you. Back. It's great to have you back. I think the first time you and I first talked about vaccines was probably about ten years ago. Before, you know, <laughs> we were, the the little stuff wasn't it, like the flu vaccine and things that we we didn't have to worry about back in the days when no one knew a brand name. Absolutely, and all focused on childhood vaccines. And now look at what we're trying to achieve. Yeah, very different game. Now, uh, also back on the show is Associate Professor Robin Schofield. from. Uh, she's the Associate Dean, Environment and Sustainability in the School of Geography, Earth and Atmospheric Sciences at the University of Melbourne. Welcome back, Robin. Thanks, Jane. Lovely to be back. I think um, for context for people, the last time we spoke to Robin, she was uh, on in her sort of uh, atmospheric chemistry role looking at contamination levels from all those northern hemisphere awful people down in Antarctica, right, Robin? That's right. I'd like to talk about mercury, I think. Yeah. Yeah, that was a long time ago. Now, now we're talking about airflow in corridors and hospitals and all those things. I'm, I'm not sure which one's more interesting to you, but I know which one's more immediate. So thanks for joining us, Robin. Great to be here. And um, because we're talking about kids and schools, it would have been remiss for us not to have someone from that sector as well. So we have Miss Kate Dullard, who is the principal of Essen and, and Penley Grammar School. Good morning, Kate. Good morning, Shane. How are you going? Good. Now, I'm not going to say anything bad because... One of my kids goes to your school, so I've got, you know, I've got to be careful. I've got to draw the line, not, not get myself into any trouble. Now, folks, we're going to try and go through as many of the issues involved here as we possibly can over the next hour, so try and stick with us. But where I want to start is with you, Sharon, and a bit of a sort of overview from you and discussion on where kids' mental health is at the moment. We, you know, if, you, if you're on Twitter or on social media, you know, it's hard to miss the commentary around how some of the kids are doing, but from your perspective, there in your professional capacity at the, the children's hospital? I mean, what sort of things are you seeing? So it's, it's probably worth splitting up some of our age groups as well and yep. thinking about um, kids' mental health because I think what's happening for adolescents is different to what's happening for primary school-aged kids, which is different, again, to what's happening for preschoolers and younger children. And I want to just flip it a little bit and talk a little bit about the parents to start with. Yep. Um, so we talked a lot about, um, we, and we will talk about child mental health, but I want to talk 
about the parents to start with because, in fact, it's probably where um, quite a lot of the anxiety is coming from is from parents. And, and I want to talk about that, recognising how tough it is for parents at the moment. Mm. So we did, um, the Royal Children's Hospital does this national poll. It's been doing it now for a few years. And over the last uh, 12 to 18 months, it's um, sort of been asking questions of parents about their own mental health and about their perceptions of their children's mental health and has done that um, three times. But it was just after the... Um, sort of before the second lockdown in Melbourne um, at about September last year and then July uh, of this year. And what we've seen is this kind of cumulative impact on parents with their mental health. Um, really, they're you know saying their own things about their mental health deteriorating with about 60% by the time we get to July, parents saying their own mental health isn't doing so great. And so that's when, of course, in July this year, we've got both New South Wales and Victoria lockdown. So... I do want to just say that a lot of it is really recognising that the adults in the children's lives are really important players in all of this mm. and recognising what parents are going through in terms of trying to juggle, for some of them working and remote learning, for some of them they've lost their jobs, uh, they've lost their, you know, who they are in all of that, um, they've, lost, um, they've lost connections with people, they're potentially isolated um, and all the things that schools enable um, parents to do, like catch up with each other, have those personal relationships and their own families and their personal relationships. So I want to start with the adults um, in the children's lives because if parents are listening, I want them to just recognise that their own mental health, looking after themselves, being kind to themselves and recognising the tough, the toughness that's going on at the moment is a really important starting point. And recognising also that most of the data that we have is parents reporting on their children's mental health. Right. Yep. And we know that if your own mental health is not so great, you're not you're likely to report your own children's mental health is not so great. So that's probably a good starting point, Shane. Mm. And do you, do you find, Sharon, like with that, I mean, you talked about that um, segmentation of kids into various age groups. Is it is it the ones who have, you know, Pre preschool little ones that are you know that the toddlers running around is that where you're seeing the biggest um, hit of mental health of parents because I know in just in anecdotally in the people I I speak to you know I was on the on a call with someone who had three as he said borderline adult children living in the house with him you know they're sort of between seventeen and twenty one and and his worst his worst concern was that they were going to steal his wine um, whereas you know others I've spoken to have got the toddlers that literally working night shift in some cases to get around that that issue of, you know, what they can and cannot do. I mean, what what are you seeing there with the parental data? And exactly what exactly what you're saying. So the the parents of younger children are doing it tougher than the parents of older children. But the parents of older children are reporting their children's mental health as poorer than mm. the parents of younger children, if that makes sense. And for all the reasons that you're saying, if you've got a Young kids, you know, childcare has been closed down in Melbourne. Um, so you're trying to juggle a job, young children. It's, you know, it's really, really tough. And um, look, some of that will start to go away as we start to open it up. And that's what we're going to talk about today. But some of it will remain. And I do think you're right. It's the parents of the younger children that are doing it tougher. Yeah. Um, but it's the adolescents that we're seeing the manifestations probably more so in their own mental health issues than we are seeing with the with the younger kids and even the primary school kids 
Um, that's not to say that we're not seeing um, that the primary school kids aren't doing it tough, but we're particularly seeing mental health issues in adolescents, and that's what we're seeing coming to emergency. Is that is that a partially a, a sort of reporting issue where you know the, the very young ones obviously aren't going to be able to articulate or even in some cases display some of the the sort of concerning behaviour that you'd clearly see in adolescents. Um, and in addition to that, there, you know, what is the sort of, you know, is there any thought on the longer term impact on the younger kids, even though you may not be having them come into the emergency room, there's obviously some pretty substantial long term impacts of them not engaging socially and so forth. I, look, I think your question's really a good one in terms of the longer term impacts. And the, the, the short answer to that is we don't know. Yeah. Um, and you, we can look a little bit into the previous pandemics um, and look at some of the um, stress and post-traumatic stress that emerged from some of those. And we can also look at previous natural disasters and have a look at some of the long, what I would call the long tail of COVID rather than long COVID, the long tail of COVID, which I think we will see. But it's, you know, I think we're going to get surprises. I think there are kids that will bounce back and be and show an enormous amount of um, growth from what's happened. And mm. I, I use the word resilience, although we're kind of banding it around a bit, but, you know, that, that idea that you'll actually come up with post-traumatic growth rather than post-traumatic stress. Um, and I think there'll be kids that we thought we're doing are going to do okay that haven't done okay. Mm. And that will be a combination of how they go back to school, how their parents do, how the world goes, and how much certainty there'll be in the world um, going forward, and I, and so much of that is still um, unknown. I think we don't know. I think what I will say, Shane, is that I think the um, onus on us as both clinicians and as researchers is to make sure we monitor that. Yeah. And I'm not 100% convinced we've got the right data in place to do that, yeah. but that's what we really need to be doing is saying, will we know, and once we know, will we have the things in place to be able to respond either way? Yep. Now, Sharon, I might just bring Kate in, our school principal on the line as well on this, because that's the other part we don't hear about as much is the sort of mental health conditions of the of the school teachers. Because, you know, they've... I'm a, I'm a I'm the president of the school council of one of, one of my kids' schools, and you know, and I, I hear a lot coming through there, and I hear about some of the, in some cases, some of the abuse um, that teachers are getting. And I realise some of that frustration boils over, but it, you know, should never end up in that sort of scenario. Kate, what are you seeing in terms of the sort of the, the mental health of of your teacher group? And is I mean, is it different across different levels, or is it just depending on how young and old some of your teachers are? What what, what are your observations there? Yeah, I think it it's, it is different for everyone, and a lot of that has to do with sometimes their personal circumstances. I know that. Um, that teachers who are trying to juggle home learning with their own young children mm -hmm. are finding it particularly difficult um, and that we, you know, that things have tightened up in terms of those children being able to access on-site supervision at their own schools as well. Um, so that's been really tricky. Look, the, you know, I want to highlight some of the growth as well in terms of that growth and learning that's taken place. And so there are have been really wonderful opportunities to celebrate that learning and development and I think people are really conscious of how much They've grown and changed as a result of this. But I know that this lockdown has been probably the hardest for everyone because, in you know, the longer lockdown last year, we kind of knew it was going to go on for as long as it did. And, and this one, we've just sort of had to change our plans so many times. Mm. Um, and so, and, you know, the, the information 
um, we, we find out everything at the same time as the general public through the press conferences. And so you, you're kind of hearing these things and you're not really sure when the when the announcements are going to be made and it might come, you know, when someone's feeling particularly flat and then they realise, well, we're not going to be back on site for another, you know, a few weeks now and, and I just have to change all those plans that I've made. But I think um, being able to feel sort of a sense of comfort in discomfort, you know, that really coming to terms with the fact that this is a really uncertain time and and we just don't know what things um, lie ahead for us and, and that that, uh, you know, being okay with that um, takes a little bit of yeah. uh, mental acrobatics sometimes, but I think people are getting better at it. Yeah. yeah. Um, Sharon, back to you. There, there are obviously vast inequalities that exist uh, around our city and, and, you know, our country sites and so forth. And one of the things that I've been, you know, I've been, people who follow me on Twitter will see me bagging on about this all the time. But, you know, we have some of our more well, well, you know, resourced schools and resourced environments and, and, and caters from an example of one of those. But there's also the other end of it where those resources are really limited. And in, to be fair, those many of those communities struggle in a very major way without the pandemic. I mean, what, what are you seeing in that regard? So it's a really good point. And, and I do want to say it's not like we had great equal outcomes before the pandemic mm. and the pandemic came along and suddenly there's inequalities. We really had very substantial um, educational and health inequalities for children in this country like for a long, long time. So I do think we need to recognise that what the pandemic do- has done is maybe expose those and uh, my hypothesis will be that they'll it'll widen those inequalities. Um, and so, and it's going to widen it for all the reasons that you can think about. So you're absolutely right. There's various resourcing that's been available, particularly um, to younger children during the um, COVID. So if you think about children who've been in the first one or two years of school, for a, for a number of them, particularly in Victoria, but now also in New South Wales, they've really missed a lot of substantial learning. Now, if you don't have, if you don't have parents that can sit with you when you're that age and have access to the internet, and we do need to recognise that um, having access to data on the internet is an expensive affair, um, and you have a device, you know, all of those sorts of things. Um, so so you, you can already see how those inequalities mm. might play out, where there are kids who, have, who are at home with their parents, sitting with them, almost tutoring them, actually, yep. and the kind of widening we're going to see, where the average might look the same, but actually we're starting to see um, this widening. And, uh, and what worries me is those kids who are in those foundational years um, and then the kids who are sitting, you know, if you if you can imagine the whole rising the tide, everybody is kind of maybe has moved down a bit, and then everybody else who's kind of well resourced is moving up a bit. And you're just going to get, um, you know, this widening of inequalities. And I don't think exactly we know how much that's going to play out. I, I can say that the one intervention in Victoria that I think might kick the goals for everybody is the tutoring program. And if that really um, ends up being delivered in the way it could be delivered, that 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 may not only um, kind of get us back to where we were, which, you know, is a bit ho-hum, but actually if we do it well, we'll start addressing the very real gaps we've always had um, in education. And and that will be a really interesting thing to see. Yeah, yeah. look, I think it's it, it's a really good point. And that, that inequality is, um, I know over in, the, in my own experience, and I'm well-resourced and 
Um, last year, we didn't have the NBN at my house and we were tethering phones and, you know, all sorts of devices and it was a nightmare. It was a nightmare and I'm good at that stuff and it was still a nightmare. Um, but even with my, my, my boys at the moment, every now and then they'll ask me a maths question and keep in mind, for I think everyone listening knows, but I have a PhD in physics. I did maths to third year uni and every now and then I have to say, Hang on, guys, just give me a few minutes to Google something because I don't know what that term means anymore. I've, I've forgotten it. And, and you know, all those times when I bitched and moaned about, you know, why I had to learn long division, I get it now. It's so I can teach my kids in a pandemic. You know, that, that's, that's the real reason. There is a reason for, for learning long division. Well, because, lucky they actually, lucky they ask you, Shay. Yeah, well, they do. And, and, that's, and, and, you know, as you say, though, it is a problem in that I have to walk away from my work to, to do that. And doing that sometimes all day is actually really challenging and, Depending on the type of work you do, it may just simply not be be possible or feasible at all. So, and not all parents are able to go and tutor their kids in maths. Or, um, you know, I, I I kind of veer away when they start asking me grammar questions. I was like, yeah, you know, they're about that. Let's do the maths homework first, you know, because I know I'm in trouble. So I think it's 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 challenging for everyone. Now we're going to take a short. Um, break for some music folks um, but when we come back we're going to be talking um, more about vaccinations and how COVID is actually affecting our kids probably in the reverse order I think might be a little better um, so we can get a bit of a picture of you know what we should be expecting um, over the coming months. You're, you're listening to Einstein the Go-Go folks we've got uh, Professor Sharon Goldfield Associate Professor Margie Danchin, uh, Associate Professor Robin Schofield and Miss Kate Dullard on the call today we're talking about kids COVID and the return to school. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo today. Uh, I, Dr. Shane, am talking with Sharon Goldfield, Margie Danchin, Robin Schofield, and Kate Dullard about schools, vaccinations, and COVID and getting our kids back. Now, Margie, I think it's time we started talking about COVID itself and what we know, and I, I suspect in a bigger bucket is what we don't know about how COVID is affecting kids, especially with this Delta strain. I think it's fair to say that if anyone gets on Twitter or on the net, they will find pretty much any answer that they want if they look hard enough. I mean, what, what sort of things do we know at the moment that we're sure about with regards to kids in this new strain? And I think this has been really hard, and I want to acknowledge this up front. There's so much confusion around COVID in kids and how severe it is. So, you know, fortunately, one of the blessings since the start of the pandemic is that COVID illness in the most part has been mild. And I can reassure everyone with the Delta variant that the data is still telling us the same thing. So overwhelmingly still, even with Delta, even though it's more transmissible, we know that um, even up to 50% of kids who get infected with COVID have no symptoms or asymptomatic and that the rest of the kids predominantly have mild symptoms, they're managed at home, they have simple viral symptoms and only about 1% of children get more severe disease and need admission to hospital. And most of those hospital admissions are due to things like pneumonia or for dehydration. Some of them have, very few, have needed to be admitted to hospital for that rare syndrome that you would have heard about called PIMS-TS or MIS-C, um, and that's that multi-system inflammatory syndrome in kids. It's a little bit like Kawasaki disease. But actually in Australia nationally, we've only had four confirmed cases since the start of the pandemic. Mm. And then, of course, there's the whole question around any chronic or lingering symptoms in kids that might persist a month or two months after the infection. 
And that's called long COVID, which we can talk about separately. But I just want to reassure people listening that overwhelmingly it is still mild in children. But I think where um, the sort of tension comes is because we know that Delta is more transmissible, we are going to see more infections in children. So therefore, even though the overall proportion of kids getting severe disease or needing to admission to hospital is the same, we will see more kids needing admission to hospital. And that's why it's still so important that we have every strategy in place to reduce the number of infections in kids. And that's really predominantly around getting adults and eligible teenagers and grandparents vaccinated, Mm. which I'm sure we'll talk about as part of the school's plan. Yep. Now, Margie, let's just run through some of those numbers for a second. So when you say about 50% of the kids are asymptomatic, um, how does that compare to adults? Because I can imagine if half the kids with COVID at any given school are asymptomatic, that is going to run through that school at a rate of knots if no one knows that they're sick, right? Well, I mean, that is potentially true, although what we have seen from uh, transmission data in schools is that transmission between children is actually far less common than transmission between infected staff members or even a staff member to a child. So I don't think people need to be panicking that there's going to be sort of rife transmission between asymptomatic children. But you are right, Shane, in adults, the vast majority, um, even though still with adults, they get a lot of mild disease, they do tend to be more symptomatic. Um, So, but having said that, you know, we still know that kids with COVID, the most common symptoms are fever by far and cough. And then there's a whole spectrum of other symptoms from tummy pain and gastro symptoms and so on. So they still do get those common viral symptoms that Mm. we see. So when we talk about 1% of, about 1% of kids needing hospitalisation. So, I mean, that's, we're talking about, you know, several children potentially in each school across the state. So we're talking about fairly substantial numbers. Can you give us a better idea of what you mean, though, by hospitalisation? I mean, what are, we, what are we talking about? I've taken my kids to the hospital when they've bumped their head to make sure that they don't have concussion and we're gone the next day. Um, I mean, what are, we, what are we talking about? Yeah. Don't forget, though, and I just want to re-emphasise this again because I think this has been misreported in the media. We're not expecting every single child in mm. the class to get COVID. Yep. So it's of the children in the class or in the school who get COVID, 1% of them can go to hospital. So I've seen that really misrepresented mm. in stories online. So what are we talking about? Well, as you would um, be aware from the data that was released from the National Centre for Immunisation Research and Surveillance around their school's data, so that was about a seven-week period, sort of June, July, August, Um, what they found actually was a slightly higher hospital admission rate of 2%, um, uh, or was actually, sorry, over that time, it wasn't through the kids, through the schools, but over that time period. But at least a third of those admissions were social admissions. And what that means is that the kids were infected with COVID, but so were the parents, and the parents were really sick and were admitted to hospital or ICU. And so those kids needed to be admitted to hospital because there was no one else to care for them. Yep. So some, some of that New South Wales data overall of infections in kids is a bit distorted. But just to reassure people listening, of all of the cases of children in the New South Wales schools data, there were 100 103 cases or 102 cases, not one child was admitted to hospital, Mm. not one. 
So I don't think parents need to be panicking that if their kids are going to be going back to school, there's a high chance that they're going to get severe disease and need to go to hospital. That's not what we're seeing, despite the scary projections from the Burnett data and so on. Yep. So I think just just to summarise that, it's fair to say then that with regards to the numbers, we're talking about very low numbers of hospitalisation. Um, those hospitalizations are probably pretty mild by comparison to, especially to adults. Um, the likelihood of kid-to-kid transmission is fairly low, relative very to low. very low. And just just to confirm, this is data on Delta, not on last year's stuff, but this is no, the, the this current is strain. Yep. But I do want to just um, say that the New South Wales schools data did show that um, the transmission within educational settings was five times higher than with the previous strain. So yeah. I, I don't want to completely downplay the transmission risk in schools because, as you can see, there's a huge amount of effort going into strategies, which we'll talk about as part yep. of the school's plan, to do everything we can to limit transmission within schools. But I, I guess I just really want to reassure parents that we're not really terrified that we're going to have huge numbers of kids that are going to be needing to admission to hospital. Yeah, and I guess in your case, I mean, you're 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 on the front line where you'd be seeing those kids or some of those kids at the children's hospital. So I, I suppose from your perspective, you really don't want to be dealing with that. So, no, that's yeah, that's right. I mean, I've been working um, through the pandemic in our short stay unit, which has been our COVID ward, if you like. Yep. We've seen very few kids actually admitted to hospital with COVID. Most have been managed through hospital in the home and that's also what they've done in New South Wales a lot of support of kids in their home environment but still sort of patients of mm. the hospital if you like um, so you know but of course when we get to vaccinations the reason we want to vaccinate kids is we still want to protect them yep. because severe disease can still happen but it is a very small proportion of children now following that logic if there is a if there is a case of the school it would it would sort of stand that the school wouldn't close as a result of that if we follow this logic is that what you expect to be happening because in last year and in you know previous sort of lockdowns the second there was so much of, as a sniff of a case in the school that school was shut and intensively cleaned and so forth so but with this new with this information we're putting out to parents now it would it would be logical for those schools not to close if they had a case i don't know that we can con- completely say that yet, Shane, that when we have a case in the school, the school won't shut. I think there's a lot of work going into ways that we can manage that better. But as you say, up until now, if there's a case in a school, on average, the school has shut for between four to five days, depending Mm. on the size of the outbreak. There's been a deep clean of the school. Of course, all the cases and primary close contacts go into um, quarantine or isolation, and then the casual contacts come back to school after, you know, the school's deemed safe after four to five days. Now, we don't know. We don't want this disruption to keep happening to the kids. So, hence the plan, again, to keep transmission and cases as low as we can in schools. And we'll see a lot of innovation, I think, around rapid antigen testing, Mm. uh, whether that will be, you know, a test-to-stay sort of plan at schools, home testing. I think there's a lot that will happen in the next 12 months. Yeah. Now, just before we – we're going to take a short break in a second, then we'll come back on on vaccinations and and the plan ahead. But, Sharon, I just wanted to get your insights for a moment on – you know, when these kids all get back to school and some of them start getting sick, which is inevitably going to happen, are there concerns around the way those children will be treated by other kids, uh, the mental health of kids seeing their friends leave? Because, I mean, there's so much fear around COVID. I mean, what, what do we expect to see there? And are we ready for that? 
Well, there's, there's a couple of things. So we can, I don't know if we can talk about that later. There's just the general kids coming back to school and what that feels like anyway, mm. because actually COVID or no COVID, um, some kids will come back to school and some kids will not come back to school for a yep. whole range of reasons. And, and that's, that's going to be interesting to see. The other, and, and actually Margie's done a fair bit of work on this in regard to the kind of stigma that we're seeing, um, and we're seeing it internationally as well. There's been some really interesting research coming out of international data as well, um, exactly here, which is this um, sort of shame really around um, stigma mm. and stigma around having COVID and sort of being stuck with it. Now, whether that continues when we've kind of got COVID happening everywhere and sort of it'll be hard harder to sort of avoid it, um, we don't know yet. And, um, and Margie's been following a group of kids to get a better understanding of that. But there's definitely some stigma associated with this for the children and their parents yep. um, and this sense of shame and this sense of guilt um, that parents have. So I think it's really interesting, the combination of fear, guilt, stigma, and then this desire for parents to absolutely get their kids back to school. So you can imagine how many mixed feelings there are yeah. um, right here at the moment. Yeah, look, I think it's hard. I mean, it's hard enough for, for adults. I know I was in the supermarket the other day and I almost ran my trolley into a, a, a tradie and, you know, he looked at me and, and like I could tell this guy didn't want to be there. You know, he really, you know, he didn't feel comfortable being out in the world. And I said, oh, sorry, buddy, you know, it's all my fault. No problem. I was, I was three times as nice as I would normally be to him because he was wearing a mask. He was doing the right thing and he was just doing his shopping. And, you know, this, this stigma that gets attached to various groups and people and we treat everyone the same is really problematic. And we have to fight it everywhere we can. So it's good good to hear that, that that's being thought of because I think that's going to be a really a big issue as we as we see this sort of playing out over the couple of months. Now, we're going to take a quick break for some station announcements, folks, uh, important stuff, and we'll be back in just a moment talking about the vaccination of kids and then how we transform our schools. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. Yeah, welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and GoGo. We're just tackling a very small issue today, which is uh, kids and COVID and vaccinations and all of those things. Now, Margie Danchin's still on the line from the Children's Hospital. Um, vaccination and kids. Where you know, one of my kids is 14. He's he's already been. I jabbed him as quick as I possibly could. I thought he's um, he needs to be vaccinated, but. Tell us where we're at, because obviously um, we held off on this for quite a long time. Now we have a group of our kids that are doing it um, relatively quickly. We're finding other teenagers are putting together COVID data, and we didn't even know it was uh, done by kids. That is more, you know, more downloaded across our country than I think most of our ma- major uh, government sort of organisations. I'm not sure if people are aware about that, but there was a, there's a really good source of COVID data that has just been revealed this week has been put together by three teenagers, and they held back their identities so that no one would um, question the legitimacy of what they were doing, and now they're local heroes. But Margie, where, where are we? with vaccinations and kids? Yeah, look, I, I just have to say up front, I'm so proud of our young people. I saw the data the other day for our vaccine coverage in the 12 to 15-year-olds, and it was something like already up around 20% uh, in Victoria, and something like 50% of the uh, year 11 and 12 students have already got vaccinated. And I think our young people are really, you know, coming out in droves. Certainly my three teenagers could not be vaccinated fast enough. They want their lives back. Um, so everyone listening would be aware 
In terms of the vaccines available for kids, these are the mRNA vaccines, the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines. And the data from the US from the trials showed that they are really effective, really effective in preventing COVID infection. So it was 100% in the 12 to 15-year-olds for Pfizer and about 93% for Moderna, which is just extraordinary. Mm. Um, and in terms of safety, you know, yes, there are the common and expected side effects that we see in the adult population, predominantly things like um, uh, fatigue, headache and a sore arm is definitely the most common, a little bit of fever, but overwhelmingly they were tolerated really well. So, Maggie, can, However, I, so, Maggie, sorry, can I just jump in there and ask you a question just for context? What's the effectiveness of the flu vaccine for kids in that age group? Oh, much less. Much less. I mean, the flu vaccine effectiveness, of course, it depends on the uh, year to year in terms of the mm. seasonal vaccine, but the effectiveness in kids is maybe around 60%. Yeah, extraordinary difference, isn't it? Yeah, okay. 60, no. 70% differs between strains, but it's not great. Yeah, but it's not 90, 94 or 100%. So. It's not between 93 and 100%. So we're so lucky. We've got these incredibly effective vaccines. But just quickly, I want to say that once the vaccines were rolled out into the population, because, of course, in the US and Canada, they started their program for the teens in May, and they did find this rare but serious side effect of the inflammation of the heart muscle, the myocarditis or the lining around the heart, pericarditis. And it is worth touching on this briefly for people listening so we know that this happens more commonly in young men and boys between the ages of about 12 and 30, and the highest risk is in the 16 to 17-year-old age bracket, but it's still a very low risk. The risk is 70 cases per million doses mm. of uh, Pfizer vaccine, or about one in 16,000, uh, and it does still happen in young girls, but it's about eight per million. So it is really rare, but, um, you know, it, it sort of presents with a bit of... Um, chest pain or a little bit of shortness of breath and these young people would go to their GP or the emergency department they may need admission to hospital for a night or two but the management is conservative or you know pain relief some anti-inflammatories and everyone has made a full recovery mm. and I spent a little bit more time on that just because there's a lot of concern about well what is the risk benefit of vaccinating kids and when we talk about the risk it's that adverse event or side effect that we're really weighing up and the UK has evaluated differently, if you like, to what the Australian recommendations are. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that's important too is that we always have to, and, and we don't hear this very often, but we do have to monitor the risk in terms of its sort of more global impact of our communities. So the risk in terms of vaccination, there might be that one in, you know, however large number that we often can't get our head around um, for, for your teenager. But then when they may interact with others who are immune compromised or elderly and the vaccines are less effective or whatever else, that risk sort of propagates out. And the idea, one of the things that's often been done in this vaccine is the communication of risk has been just my risk, just for me. And I think, gee, that's, that's a very limited way of viewing it, given we're always having to work as a community. Well, that's right. And it's important to come back to the risk of the disease, which is exactly what you've just highlighted. So we know from, for example, the data from the UK from the first year of the pandemic, there were tragically 25 kids who died over that 12-month that period, and two-thirds of them had 
underlying medical conditions which put them at high risk. So these are the kids who you really want to protect and for them COVID vaccination is critically important. And just to put that in context, last week in clinic I had a 17-year-old boy, so the highest risk group if you like for yep. myocarditis, who'd actually had myocarditis six weeks earlier for his from his chemotherapeutic drugs because he has um, ALL or, or leukaemia. And on balance, his cardiologist and I decided that it was still the best thing for him to go ahead and have his two-dose course of Pfizer to protect him from COVID disease, mm. even though he'd recently had myocarditis. So even those kids, the benefit of vaccination is outweighing the small risk of these um, more serious side effects. Yeah, I, su I, I suppose especially anyone who has some pre-existing condition, which what is that? Like forty percent of our population? Like it's a pretty large group, right? We're not it's talking. High. We're not talking about one in hundred here. We're talking about you know getting towards half of our population has some pre pre existing something, and you know those sorts of numbers then start to play out, and you look at that and say, well, you know, if COVID is high risk for some of those people, then gee, you know, you really want to be doing something. We as really as want possible. to protect them. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Now, Margie, what what about the younger groups of kids? I mean, obviously that that sort of twelve and up group, we've kind of got that sorted. You can go down to your local pharmacy and you can get the Moderna vaccine. I think there's plenty of that yeah. going around at the moment. You know, if you have a if you have a PhD in computer science, you can get online and book with the the state's booking system, which takes is a little bit frustrating, but you will get there, folks. You've just got to clear a bit of time in your in your day. Um, and there's lots of other ways to book through, you know, your GPs and so forth. So so there's a lot of access now for, for for vaccines for, for kids, but under 12s, what, what's the situation there, Maggie? So we don't have a vaccine yet for the under 12s, but you would have seen this last week that the Pfizer data was released, the immune response data for the 5 to 11-year-olds, which looked incredibly encouraging. Mm. So the antibody response or immune response for those kids, and that was in a trial in about you know, two, over 2,000 um, young kids was the same uh, response to the older age group, that sort of um, 16 to 24-year-old age group. So, but that doesn't tell us the clinical uh, protection or effectiveness yet. So that's the data we're still waiting for for younger kids is the clinical protection and also we need more safety data. All we have so far is those common and expected side effects, if you like. Right. Yep. So I think in Australia, even though we know in the US they're now going to apply to the FDA in the next six weeks or so and try and get that Pfizer vaccine recommended for the 5 to 11-year-olds in America, I think for Australia we're going to want more safety data and a little bit of cl clinical protection data. So I don't think we can expect to see a TAGI or TGA first approving it and then a TAGI recommending use until at least early next year. Yep. So all the more reason to protect our teachers and parents and grandparents of all the kids in the primary school age group and below. Absolutely. So it comes back to critically protecting the household, cocooning our younger kids and having a fantastic safe plan for them to get back to school. Um, but And, of course, they still have to follow all the normal public health advice mm. with hand washing. Mask wearing, I think, will be really strongly recommended and encouraged for very young kids and, and particularly for primary school age children now, and it'd be great to hear Kate's view on that as well. Yeah. Actually, let's just jump in there, Kate, with regards to masks and kids. I, I know uh, my son would, would carry his mask off to school with him, but what kind of um, compliance levels are you getting from the kids? You know, they all are they doing what the adults do and wander around with a cup of coffee so they don't have to wear it? Is that...? 
They're more into lollipops. <laughs> no, they, yeah. Look, they're um, they're pretty good. They are pretty good, um, and they understand. But you know, it's been difficult with the younger children. I think that really mm. um, getting them into the habit, uh, and we've got lots of primary students who are not comfortable wearing masks, and it's obviously not compulsory for primary children, primary age children, but. Um, the secondary students, look, they, I mean, it's like anything with teenagers, need the occasional reminder, but we've got many who were wearing them when they weren't compulsory as well. And, and so there's a there's a real commitment there, I think, and an understanding of the value they provide um, yep. in terms of health and safety. Yeah. Yep. Look, I, I would recommend strongly to any parents out there with their primary school kids. I've been I've been uh, strongly encouraging my, my nine-year-old with a, a couple of I should say, absolutely awesome Millennium Falcon Star Wars uh, face masks um, to, to wear his when we go out, even though it's not required. So if we go to the supermarket together, I get him just just so that he is a bit more prepared for when school comes back if that requirement is put in place. You don't want day one of a school return to be the first day these kids ever wear a mask. I think especially for the young ones, you know, getting them used to that beforehand will be really effective. Now, I think that's a that's a good place for us to, um, to pivot across to you, Robin, with regards to... Um, the sort of aerosol scenario. Now, one of the things that still sticks with me is this, this, and can I use the word myth? I could be wrong. Correct me if I'm wrong. This idea that 1.5 metres was about as far as this thing would ever travel and you didn't have to worry about it because the droplets would hit the ground really fast. And some of us, you know, a year and a half ago were sort of saying, hang on, maybe, um, maybe we want to think about that a bit more because, you know, for those of us who are into particles, we don't really see this hard line drawn at, at a certain, you know, five micron size particle. What, I mean, what is the scenario now with, with COVID and, and the way it's transmitted through the air? Well, we know, um, we know a lot um, and we've learned a lot over the last year as well. Like I, I've, I always was like, what? Five micron particle is definitely going to travel much more than 1.5 metres. Um, you just need to blow bubbles to know how far they'll travel. Right. And that's, that's something that I quite like to do, particularly, you know, making kids understand how far air travels. Set up a bubble machine. <laughs> and <laughs> and um, so that's quite not illustrative, I think. When we, when we talk, and, and so when you think about who's talking in a classroom, um, when we talk, it's air moving over our... Um, our vocal cords, which actually causes a process like wave breaking on the top of the ocean. It shears off the little droplets, and that's happening all the time. So that's why talking, singing, when you've got a lot of vibration on your vocal cords, more. You just get more of them. Um, and if your vocal cords have collapsed a little bit, as, you do, as they do when you age, you get more. So these are all things which will produce more aerosols when you're speaking uh, for example. So when you think of a classroom situation, you've got a, a teacher up the front projecting or you've got students shouting, you know, like these are all going to be higher aerosol generating mm. um, processes going on in the classroom, running around exercising. Our, our lungs have a surface area of half a tennis court. Yeah. So, you know, that's we're really good at gas exchange. So it's really clear that that's, you know, we're getting a huge exposure to the air in our indoor spaces. So that's why we want to make the indoor spaces as much like outside as possible. And I'll just go to some of the points I've made earlier around inequality, because the inequality of air uh, is 
is really strong um, across our cities, etc. So poorer um, socioeconomic um, areas are associated with poorer air. And then that's they do go together actually because of if you're more if you have more resources, you move away from uh, from an area which will make you sick. And yep. we have we have a lot of people die of air quality um, across Australia each year. And um, and so I see this really as an opportunity to appreciate that air is one um, one part of what makes us really healthy it's really important hasn't had much attention Hmm. we'd never accept dirty um, water or dirty food and and so we shouldn't accept dirty air yeah it's interesting um i know here at triple r then we have we have many studios here the broadcast from in triple r and we have three main broadcast studios that we typically use but no one is allowed into the studio i'm in for the next hour so you know edith is on as a program after mine and no one's allowed to come into this studio and broadcast either they're in the studio next door preparing and we're not allowed to follow on from each other that's one of the very strict rules we've had since i think march last year here at triple r and i feel very comfortable with that because i i'm very much of that mindset and the bubble example is a great one that some of those bubbles might still be floating around for 10 minutes after I, I leave, and that would be a real problem. What does that look like in a classroom? It, you know, when you have 20, 25 kids um, and a teacher talking constantly up the front, how, you know, how, how much ventilation is required to make that environment at least m- minimize the risk? Right. So we, we tend to talk about air changes per hour. Yep. And um, in my house, um, you know, no ventilation really unless uh, I open the doors, that sort of thing. But say I don't <laughs> open them. Are you getting about one air change per hour? Which that means people are like, oh, that means you change all the air over in an hour. No, mm. it means you change 63% of the air over in a year, in, that, in an hour, sorry. It's like if you take a... a a jar and you put a few drops of food dye into it and then you take another jar which just this is water in the jar jar the same size same volume of just water and then you pour that into your dye jar you're not removing all of that dye you're just removing basically you're just removing 63 percent of it in one air change now hospitals we'd like to see six to eight um, upwards of that actually um, and and so that means that you're getting a 99% clearance in about 50 minutes mm. if you've got six air changes per hour. Yeah. Now, with those air cleaners, they can give, if you've got a smaller room, um, say the classroom size, one of those might give you six air changes. Oh, wow. Effective yeah. ones. They're not taking out the CO2 in the classroom. They're not actually making it fresher, the air but they are removing those respiratory aerosols. Yeah, no, that sounds good. I think that's a good point, Margie, for us to talk about the the quite you know extraordinary investment actually from the state government, which has been announced over the last week of I think in total something of the, the range of 190 million. But I remember on Twitter a week ago, I got actually slapped for this, but I did a, a raw back of the envelope calculation of how many of these HEPA filters would be needed if we put one per classroom across all the state schools in Victoria 
And I think my numbers came out at about something like 120,000. And I was very, very um, happy to see that the actual number that the state government's putting out is 51,000, which is, you know, at least in the same order of magnitude pretty much as what I was suggesting. I mean, what, tell us a bit about this plan because you're involved in the recommendations for this and the report that led for this. So what does that look like? That's right. We were really fortunate. So Sharon Goldfield, Fiona Russell and myself from MCRI have been working with the Department of Health and the Department of Education. And I really think they've shown great leadership with this plan, actually, in Victoria. As you said, it's $190 million that's been announced. They've called it the three Vs, which is ventilate, which Robin is thrilled about, uh, vaccinate. And then I think it's called... Uh, uh, vital COVID safe steps. I always forget the third B. <laughs> it's because it's more than the V. <laughs> but um, anyway, that, that's all the other mitigation strategies. So as you said, $120 million has been uh, put aside for these um, uh, air ventilation units, uh, uh, the HEPA filters, to go in um, classrooms that are or, or spaces in schools that are deemed to be, um, you know, most in need of air exchange, as Robin has just explained. And I think that's extraordinary uh, to have that that leadership and to have that happening. Um, And then the other sort of uh, money that's been put aside is really for uh, creating infrastructure changes around outdoor learning spaces, shade cloths um, and all sorts of other strategies. And then you would have seen as part of that plan as well that it's now mandatory for teachers uh, to be vaccinated and staff who are working in schools. So really comprehensively you have the teachers protected um, and you try and make in schools it's safe as possible with the ventilation units, the outdoor learning spaces, masks for kids. Um, And then, of course, you would have seen in the plan going back to school that they've prioritised initially um, the U12s, which is fantastic, Uh, And then the younger kids, as Sharon outlined earlier, just how important it is to get those preps to grade twos back in terms of the impact on their parents and their own developmental and learning needs. And then in a graded fashion, every two weeks you're seeing the other kids coming back, Um, but not every day, two days a week. Uh, Then Mm. I think 5th of November is when everybody's supposed to be back full-time, face-to-face learning when lockdown ends. So we just keep everything crossed that that's how it will progress. But it's a very comprehensive plan. And then the last part really to say is just critically, again, to stress the whole bubble and how important it is to have um, uh, parents, grandparents and eligible teens vaccinated. And in the state of Victoria, they have now, I think, over 70 pop-up vaccination uh, clinics that have been uh, set up in schools and other community areas to really encourage parents um, of all these school kids to come in and get vaccinated because, honestly, the best thing that um, parents can do to protect their kids is to get themselves vaccinated. Yep. Uh, Kate, we only have a couple of minutes left, but I just wanted to check in with you because you're at a, a non-government school, so I, I'm not sure what sort of resources are coming your way. That wasn't part of the announcement so much. But, I mean, is this your plan as well to you know fill the corridors or the classrooms with some of these HEPA filters? I mean, I think the idea of just opening all the windows all the time is not feasible for many schools, especially with hay fever this season coming up and it's going to be hot and fair. I mean, what's the plan for your school? Yeah, so we um, – the 
the rollout of the um, filtration systems, it's going to some independent schools, but mm-hmm. not uh, not us. So we'd been looking into it and, you know, you don't think as a school principal you'd be so interested in listening to interviews with atmospheric chemists, but really it's been <laughs> um, it's been great. I've, you know, I've been doing a lot of research into it prior to that announcement and um, and so we'd been looking at it and, and some of our, you know, we are a well-resourced school, some of our newer buildings. Um, so our um, senior school has CO2 monitoring built in. It was already part of it because, you know, we think it does promote good learning to have, um, you know, um, well-ventilated spaces. And so that building is fine. It's got the monitoring in there. And then when it drops to a certain point, um, the uh, the fresh air filtration kicks in. So that that's ready to go. But in our, some of our older buildings, so where our prep to twos are returning, um, we will, we've got um, machines on order, the same specs as the state government um, machines that they'd bought out. <laughs> you can't order those ones independently yep, unless you're part of that deal. So um, we've gone with similar models, uh, the same model with the same specs. So we'll, we'll have those in, um, you know, and then it is, it, it's those same steps. So the vaccination, we've had um, paid vaccination leave for staff in place for a long time. We've had organisations um, helping us out in terms of, uh, you know, if they've got excess at the end of the day, um, calling us up to say send some send some teachers down, and so we've been really fortunate in that regard as well. Um, we've had a really great response rate mm. from our staff in terms of vaccines. So, yeah, I guess the next step is is with our students. And again, I know the take up um, has been has been good so far. Um, you know, and that's represented across the state yep. as well. Yep. Um, certainly, as the year twelves are preparing to come back to school. Yeah, yeah. No, that's great, great. And uh, look, Robin just sent a, an interesting point through to us all in the chat, which is sometimes it's better to have two smaller units because they're a bit quieter and get get the job done rather than one big uh, jet engine somewhere in the corner of the yeah. room. And I, I tell you, as someone who gets a bit of uh, tinnitus in the ear, I'm I'm a big fan of the the low noise ones because that that particular yeah. sound is a bit torturous for some of us. We we don't particularly like it. But folks, um, we're going to have to wrap it up in a sec. But I'd like to uh, thank uh, Professor Sharon Goldfeld from uh, the Children's Hospital and the Murdoch Children's Research Institute. Thank you, Sharon, so much for coming on the program. Also, Associate Professor Margie Danchin, also from the uh, the Children's Hospital and the uh, the Murdoch Children's Research Institute, and both from the University of Melbourne. Thank you both. It, it was great to have you on for the first time, Sharon, and good to see you again, Margie. Um, Thank you so much. You're very welcome. And uh, Associate Professor Robin Schofield, uh, hopefully next time we have her back on, she'll be back in Antarctica measuring contaminants and everything will have quietened down. Great to see you again, Robin. Thanks. Good, good luck with teaching people about airflow. I think it's, uh, you know, I remember when the Brisbane floods occurred and everyone said, find me a hydrologist. And now it's your turn. Find me an atmospheric chemist. It's great. Your time had to come sooner or later. And also Kate Dullard, who is the principal of Essendon and Penley Grammar School. Great talking to you, Kate. Thanks so much for your insights about the schools. Thanks, Shane. Folks, I just wanted to say to you all that I hope this episode has been useful to you. I know I came into this fairly uh, concerned about what I'd be doing with my kids. I'm not 100% uh, decided on, especially for my little one, but it seems, and this usually happens whenever I talk to Margie Danton, actually, I always feel a bit more comfortable afterwards when she gives me the actual facts. But hopefully you've got a bit more insights as to what is ahead over the coming months, what the risks are what the mitigation strategies you can put in place are as well as the ones that you need to be expecting from your school. So I do hope this has been valuable. Remember, science is everywhere. I'm Dr. Shane. Have a great Sunday. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. 
Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.